don't stink. You know, and a list of instructions that are given to the kids. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here, is he's giving some final instructions at the beginning of this last section of this letter they wrote. Now, you understand, when he wrote this letter, there were no chapters. There were no verse markers. I mean, that was all added later by other people. And we're thankful that that is so because we can find our way in our Bible easier that way. But it is, he's continuing really on with what he has been talking about throughout the gospel. I mean, throughout the letter, in essence, about the progress of the gospel, what that looks like, how that impacts life. He's, you know, he's writing this letter from, he wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. And he said that didn't stop the gospel from progressing. In fact, it went into areas that would never have reached otherwise. It went into the Praetorian Garden, into Caesar's household. And, and so he's rejoicing that even though he was in chains, the word of God was not in chains. And, you know, it wasn't bound and it was going out. And then he talks about, you know, conflict that was going on with other people regarding him. He says, you know, some people are glad that I'm in prison and some people are, are, you know, are not. Some people are pretending to support me and be a friend and others are truly friends and whatever the case, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here now. I think I'm going to get out, but if I don't get out, that's okay too because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But, you know, I think I'll get out and I'll come and visit you again and I want to believe God has more for me to do in, in ministering to you and building you up. And then towards the end of chapter 1, he says, so what I want you to be thinking about is standing firm. Standing firm as believers in the face of persecution. It's going to come your way. Chapter 1, verse 27 and and following, he says, it's going to come your way. Stand together. uh, Serve together. Be together. And he brings up a, a common theme running throughout the book, which is not only standing firm, but being unified in doing so. Chapter 2, he picks up right with the idea of unity. He says, if there's any, any real blessing in Christ, any consolation, any love, etc., etc., then, th- you know, uh, think of others as more important than yourself. Put others as above your own interests, the interests of others above yours. Be like Christ. Have this attitude in you, which is in Christ, who is willing to leave the glories of heaven, step into time and space, take on a human body, become a man, and, uh, and he did so, although he was God, he did that. Why? Because he was thinking of us. Because he was thinking of others, not himself. He didn't grasp onto it and say, this is mine, I'm not letting go. No, he says, I, I empty myself. I empty myself. And I'm willing to become a servant. I'm holy God, but I'm willing to be a servant, a servant to all. And, and he, he came and he served. And he came in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself and went to death. The worst kind of death, death on a cross. God exalted him for doing that, right? God resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. And that's what he did with his own son. So be like Christ. That's what he's saying. Follow Christ's example. And, and, uh, and then at the end of chapter 2, and Paul goes into, hey, as, as, as people of God, you're to be light in the world. Light in a dark world. And you're to be a straight line in a crooked world. It's perverted out there. Be blameless and pure and holy. Be right with God and right with one another. And then he says, let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. And he brought up Timothy. 
It was a Timothy. What a good example who followed the example of the Lord. He was a servant of the Lord. He served alongside Paul. He, he put Paul's interest above his own. He's just like Jesus. And then he says, And Epaphroditus, one of the men that you, Philippians, have sent to help minister to my needs. This guy is an example that followed Christ as well. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to suffer like Jesus did for the sake of others, for me and for other people, that the gospel could progress. Awesome examples. And then in chapter 3, we, we, this quick review, right? Chapter 3 is like, hey, I'm telling you this because there are some bad people out there. They're called false teachers. Be aware of them. They're, they're, they're evil. They're like a wild pack of dogs. They, they come in among the, 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 the flock of God and they will decimate the flock if you allow them free reign. They, they, they're, all, you know, they're all focused on the mutilation, he says. He's referring to physical circumcision. So we, we get a hint that these false teachers are, were at least in part Judaizers who said, yeah, believing in Jesus is okay, but, 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 you've got to be circumcised. You've got to do this ritual. You've got to keep these feast days. You know, all of the, you've got to be a Jew to be a Christian. And he says, those people are way up. I used to be that way, he says. I used to be that way. In fact, I was more than them. I was more than them. You ask them, they'll tell you, I was the great persecutor of the church. I mean, my, I, made, I made it my aim you know, serve God by persecuting the church. I was top of the top of the heap. I was king of the hill when it comes to, you know, spirituality or relationship with God based on keeping the law or doing what is right. That that was me. But then I came to meet I came to know Jesus. I met him on the road to Damascus is what he meant. I, I met him. He revealed himself to me. And I came to know him, and from that moment on, my life totally got transformed. I viewed life entirely different. I, I, I recognized all of that religiosity, all of that doing of stuff, doing religious things, couldn't do anything for anyone, let alone me. And he says, so, you know, I've come to realize that that, was, that should be categorized as a big loss. I thought it was a gain, but now it's a, it's a liability. Instead, I've got the greatest gain now. I know Christ. I'm gaining Christ. I, I, that's what my life is all about, he's saying. I, I, I want to know him more and gain him more and serve him more. And I'm, I, want, I want to become more and more like him day by day. And that is even to the point of being like him in his death, willing to go to death for his sake, as he went to death for my sake. But, you know, I can face that, he says, because I know something's coming. It's the great prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I press on day by day to win that prize. Not that I might gain in the sense, in the sense that I'd earn it, but I press on because I know it is already laid out for me, and I'm just running toward it. That was, you know, kind of the where he was talking about himself, and he says, so follow my example. Just like, you know, Timothy and Epaphroditus followed Jesus' example. You follow my example. And, and others like me, he said. Others like me. There are others. And you follow their example. You see the truth of our doctrine 
but the truth of our lives. But, but, he says, let me bring it up again, there are others that you need to avoid. Don't imitate these people, these false teachers, whether they're legalists or libertines, you don't imitate them because, he says uh, in chapter 3, that they, they are, uh, well, they're not good. They, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Their, their life is all about glory received from men in the temporary. When true believers ought to be focused on the glory of God received in a coming day when we are transformed finally and fully when we enter into his presence. How, how chapter 3 ended. He says our citizenship is in heaven out of which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to do so and to even bring all things into submission to himself. Why? Because he is God. That's why he can do that. He's got the power. God's got the power. So that's where we left off last week, right? So let's read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4, and then we'll kind of start to break it down piece by piece. Therefore, my brothers, what I love and long for, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord again, always again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, some of your translation has gentleness, some might have something else, but let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, you ought to to be able to tell that this is a continuation of what he's been talking about by the very fact that it starts out with the word, therefore. And by the very fact that he ends that section by saying the things that you saw and heard and see, you know, my example, practice these things. So he's continuing the idea of examples to follow that are like following the example of Christ. So it's a a continuation, not a totally different uh, subject that he is addressing, but he is giving several commands, exhortations, instructions. They're all imperatives. And and, and that's not going to be the end of the letter. I mean, when we get to 10... Through it, it's like he continues on. It's like a good preacher. He just doesn't know really when to stop, so he just keeps going. 
until the ink runs dry in the well, I guess, or something like that, but we're not there yet. So we're in one through nine, these final instructions to consider that are tied to what he has already said in the letter and specifically, specifically to the last section where he says, be imitators of me and others like me, avoid these people and keep your focus where it needs to be on the transformation that's coming when we receive our glorified bodies. But the truth is, we live in the here and now. Not the then and will come, right? We're in the here and now. So that's what he's addressing. It's like, while you're in the here and now, live this way until that transformation takes place. So the first command that he gives them to consider is, if you're filling in your inserts, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. That's verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crowns, so stand fast, or so stand firm in the Lord, beloved. So again, you see that it's connected, right? That therefore, if I were translating the Greek word that is there, I would put so then, but essentially it has the same thing. I'm continuing a thought. I'm continuing a thought. But what exactly is the connection that he's making? I, mean, I think you could put it something like this. Because believers, you know, the believer's homeland and citizenship is in heaven, in the eternal, not on, in earth and on the temporal, and because a glorious transformation and inheritance awaits them, they should not allow anything to sway them from the firm foundation of the gospel. That's our foundation, right? Christ, he is the gospel. He is our foundation. They, they must remain steadfast in the here and now to honor what is yet to come at the Lord's return or when we die and we go to be with the Lord. So the, there are some negative warnings and positive exhortations uh, you know, that have already been presented in the preceding text. And, uh, and I think it serves as grounds for the exhortations that he's making here. Because this is true, because our citizenship is in heaven. And a glorious transformation is going to take place. We get to go be with Jesus, run across that finish line and into his arms and get a hug. And well done, my good and faithful servant. So glad you're here in the kingdom prepared for you. You know, that day's coming, but hey, until you cross that finish line, live this way is kind of what he is saying. So he begins, you know, with this first instruction, but before command, but before we cover the command itself, pause at Selah. And just think with me a minute about verse 1, what he actually says in this verse. I mean, it's, it's striking how many nouns and adjectives he uses in addressing this church. It's like, I never saw that before. You should. You should. I know that's grammar. Nouns, verbs, you know, adverbs, adjectives, all of that kind of stuff. But that's how we communicate. You do it every day when you talk with people. You use those things. You just don't think about them. But as you're studying the scripture, you kind of should pause every now and then and think of what 
adjectives and nouns like in this verse that he's actually using. So I, I just wrote them down and made a, a quick comment after each one. It's like they are brothers, right? Therefore, my brothers. I mean, I, that means brothers and sisters, right? Those fellow members of the family of God. They, he's writing to people that he considers to be in the same spiritual family who has God as their father, the Lord Jesus as their brother, the Holy Spirit indwelling them. They are one family. They're a family. And that we need to keep that in mind. It, it, it's, it's easier in a small church like ours. It feels more like a family. Even when we had more people, it still felt like family, didn't it? I mean, you go to bigger churches, and you can quickly lose that. You're just part of a congregation. And that's not a statement against larger congregations. You can still have family feelings within large congregations, but this is a stress that runs throughout the epistles, and Paul in particular, in this epistle, in chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 13, verse 17, chapter 4 here, and verse 1, chapter 4 and verse 8 and 21, he uses the same term. How many times do you have to call them brothers? And why does he have to call them brothers so often? Because he wants them to focus in on the fact, hey, we're family. So I'm writing to you as an apostle, and I'm giving you some instruction, and I'm giving you know, some warnings, and I'm giving you some positive things to think about. But understand, I'm not just an apostle. I'm not just a pastor who planted a church there in Philippi. I'm your brother. We're in this together. We're brothers. And then he, he, he says that they are beloved. Now, the ESV puts it, whom I love and long for. Those are, those are just two adjectives. Uh, you know, it's, so then, my brothers, beloved and longed for, is what the Greek text actually says. Beloved and longed for. That they are Loved by him with a God kind of love. The, the Greek word, you'd, most of you would be familiar with it. Agape is the, the noun. Agapeo is the verb. God's kind of love. The higher love. The committed love. The self-sacrificing love. And in this, when he says this to them, he's focusing their attention that they are the object of his deep love and commitment. That's how he thinks of them. I am committed to you. I have a desire that God's best would be realized in your life. I mean, it demonstrates warmth of his thoughts and his feelings. Yes, but it also shows his deep-seated, self-sacrificing, intelligent, and purposeful love that he has for them, always desiring God's best for them. And that's the way it ought to be in our family, right? Right? It should be that way. We love with God's kind of... I mean, we don't know love apart from God. Not, not agape love. We love because God first loved us. And, and if we say, well, yeah, I love God. Uh, it's people I really have a problem loving. Then I don't know that you know God. Because God is love. And when God loves you and changes you, you become a lover with his kind of love. I say, yeah, but people are really stinky. Come on. I mean, they just irritate, you know, to dwell with saints in, in glory, I mean, in heaven, that will be glory, to dwell with saints below, that's a different story. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. 
Well, yeah, we can be that way. We can be stinky. We can be irritating. We, we have different personalities. We rub each other the wrong way. That's all true. But on top of that should be love. And this is the theme running throughout Paul's epistle. Put on love, he says. Put on love. Above all things else, put on love. Agape love. God's kind of love. That committed love that no matter how much you irritate me, I'm going to want God's best for you. And I, if God can use me to help bring God's best to you, that's what I'm going to do. That's the Apostle Paul. He's speaking to this church. And that is the way that we ought to be with one another. Amen. Should be. He says that they are longed for. It's just another adjective, actually. And uh, it suggests how much he wants to see them again. Uh, and is, by the way, this is the only occurrence of the, this word in the New Testament. How many times have I said that as of late? Paul just keeps on using new words to express himself. I long for you so much. Now, it's very similar to chapter 1 and verse 8, where he said, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And same idea there, or of Epaphroditus in chapter 2, where he says, he longs, he desires to see you again. That's kind of the same expression here, but it's a new word. And it's emphasizing this deep, deep desire to see someone, again, the church. And I was, you know, I was thinking about uh, people that are married to soldiers, families that have soldiers, and they get deployed. They go in-country somewhere, and they're deployed for six months or a year or however long. Don't you know that the family, the wife, the children, the parents, the grandparents, that whole family that loves that person deeply longs to see them again? And you see those beautiful things that you can catch on news or on YouTube or Facebook or whatever where, you know, the soldier returns and there's this surprise that the wife runs up and jumps in his arms and they hug and they kiss or kids and tears are flowing. I mean, it's awesome. What is that? That's a deep longing to see someone again. I remember right after uh, my wife and, were, and I were married, almost 49 years ago now, um, I had to go on a job to Kodiak Island for six weeks. We were married, I think it was six months, and then I had to go on the job. It was a summer job on, uh, working on the Coast Guard base there, painting apartment buildings and that kind of thing. So I was gone six weeks. I was just married. That just wasn't right. That was very bad by you and dad, mom. I mean, you get that standard in the Old Testament, no going to war for a year. I mean, it should have been. Anyway, I tell you, Six weeks felt like an eternity to me. I wanted desperately to see my wife again. That's Paul. As he's, I think we could just read this verse and oh, uh, my brothers who I'm love and long for, and you know, blah blah blah. Let's go on to the more important. Stand for no. It's because he feels this way that the commands that he gives them takes on a deeper impact in their souls. He longed for them. And then notice what he describes them as. They are his joy. 
Greek word kara. It's, it's uh, very similar to charis, which is the word for grace. And by the way, grace brings a whole lot of joy into our lives. But this is a word that, emphasize, uh, that is emphasize, emphasized throughout the book, whether it's in a noun form like joy or in a verb form like rejoice. And in fact, we see it in verse 4 of our text that we just read, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's just a verbal form of this same word. It's used throughout the, the uh, letter in chapter 1 and verse 4 and verse 25, chapter 2 and verse 2, and, and then also 118 and 217. I know you're not going to write all these down. I just want to make the point it's a theme running through joy or rejoicing. 118 or, or two, 217 and 18 and 28, chapter 4 here in verse 10. So it, think about joy. It's one of those words that we know, but do we really know? Do you know what joy is? You know, it's joy. That's right. It's a a word that describes itself, right? It's joy. I got joy. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. That's right. I mean, that old song, you know, it's true. It's got the joy of the Lord in our lives. And by the way, did you know that joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and the list goes on. Against such things, by the way, there is no law. You, You don't write a law against having love or joy or peace, or patience, or gentleness, or kindness, or self-control. You don't need a law for that. And that is something that God gives us when the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in us. He gives us joy. And Paul, what he's saying is, I look at you Philippians, and like my joy meter just bounces to the top. I mean, it just bounces to the top. I think of you, you bring such joy to me. You are my joy. Now, the truth is, the Lord is our joy. Right? The Lord is our joy. But that joy is often realized as we experience life with one another. The the joy of the Lord comes to us through other people. And that's what he's saying. Hmm. And then he says, there is crown. Stephanos is the Greek word. I pointed out because we named our second son after this Greek word, the word for crown, Stephanas, and our son's name, Stephan, spelled S-T-E-F-A-N. I want to make it unique, as people tend to do with their, well, that was a long time ago. We were uh, ahead of the curve there, hon. <laughs> unique spellings to words. Um, but this is a word that is, primarily used for a wreath, a laurel wreath that was given to an athlete who competed in the games and won the game. That was the pride. They didn't get the gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal, but they won a wreath that they would wear. It's used 18 times in the New Testament, sometimes to denote that kind of literal crown, but also a literal crown like in the case of Jesus who wore a crown of thorns, a Stephanus of thorns as he was tortured before he was crucified. 
but it's also used as metaphorical crowns, such as the crowns that God is giving to believers. You say, what, what crowns are those? You mean I get crowns? I get crowns with jewels? That's kind of, don't go there. Don't go to material wealth. That's not what it's about. In fact, what we read is in 1 Corinthians 9.25, there is an imperishable crown that we go after in this life. It's, it's in the same context of running the race. Each one runs to win. He's using the metaphor of the games there. And he says, they do it to receive a perishable crown. We do it to receive an imperishable crown. You know, you put a little wreath on someone's head, it would be like putting this, you know, box, container, beautiful flower arrangement, and just put it on my head. You know, in a week, it's not going to look so good. That's right. It's perishable. One of those things that I've struggled with, you know, perishable flowers. Is that, is that a good use of my money? <laughs> there you go. Thank you. And my wife would agree with you. But it's perishable, isn't it? The grass withered, the flower falls off. The word of the Lord abides forever, and the crowns that he gives, in essence, are forever. They're imperishable. And, and then we read in James uh, chapter 1 and verse 12 that those that persevere well through trials will receive the crown of life. A God-lived life. Not a death kind of life that comes from walking in sin. And in 2 Timothy 4.8, as Paul's writing the last words of his last epistle, he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, therefore there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Righteousness. A, a crown that represents I have a right relationship with God because I've sought to honor him. And it will be given to all who have loved his appearing, he says. Crown of righteousness. And 1 Peter 5, 4 says there's a crown of glory that comes to shepherds who serve well, shepherds who serve uh, as under-shepherds to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So crowns. Wow, that's quite a description of this group of people, isn't it? Therefore, my brothers, this is how I think. I, I love you. You're so loved by me. I long to see you again. I can't wait to get out of this jail cell and be set free and come and visit you again. Oh, my heart will jump with joy. My joy will be overflowing when I see you again. And uh, I just want you to know, you're like a, a crown to me. Not one that makes me proud, but one that represents the Lord's good work in your life. Oh, boy, that's awesome. That's That'd be good if we were tell people that that's what they mean to us. What do you think? Hey, how you doing? Hey, brother. Hey. That's about as good as we get. Hey. How you doing? Uh, don't tell me I know how you're doing. Let's talk this way. I like this so much better, and I'm sure you would too if someone were to talk that way to you. I love you. I love you. You bring such joy to me when I look at what God's doing in your life. Man, I get so excited about it. I mean, all glory to Jesus. I mean, he is my joy, but you are my joy too. Oh, I can't wait till I get to see you next week when we meet again.
I mean, just awesome. Okay, so now we're actually to the first command. Stand firm in the Lord. So if you didn't get this yet, I never intended to get through the whole sermon insert. Not in my plan. My wife and Kia were planning worship. I was in another uh, place for part of that time. When I uh, finally arrived and they were giving me the songs for not this week, but for next week, but they, there's like, but we didn't know how far you were going to get. And it's like, I said, well, I'll be in Philippians 4, 1 through 9 at least two weeks. My wife looked at me and said, two weeks? I didn't, two weeks for one verse, maybe. I was so hurt. At that moment, she was not my joy. <laughs> no, totally joking. I laughed. I laughed. You could just get a, you, you carry along with me as we just kind of slowly walk through this wonderful epistle that is just as important for us as it was to those that originally received it. So after you know powerfully expressing the depth of his feelings for the church, Paul gives the first of these multiple commands: stand firm in the Lord. And and the word stand, it's pretty clear what it means, right? Stand. I mean, sometimes, literal, you know, stand. But it's more than that. He's not telling them you've got to stand throughout your entire service when you meet together or, you know, don't ever sit down. You know, I'm at, uh, struggling so much with my needs and back that I don't know whether to stand or to sit anymore because if I stand, my knees hurt. If I sit, my back hurts. So, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about stand firm in the Lord. And so the meaning of this here is something like be firmly committed in your beliefs and in your conviction of who the Lord is and how you are to live to his glory. Something like that. So he's saying don't allow yourselves to be moved or tossed to and fro by every wind of false doctrine because he's talked about the false teachers that they were to avoid and be aware of. And he says, don't allow that to take place. Don't, don't allow their deceptions to move you around so that you are unstable in your ways. Stand firm. And so when I think of that, I think of uh, a sumo wrestler. Japanese sumo wrestler, right? You know, the two of them get in the ring, they face each other, and they do this. And I have not the gut nor the body size to be a sumo wrestler. I get knocked over by a breath. But they do that, and then they charge one another. You know, but it's like, I'm planting my feet. You're not moving me from this spot. It doesn't matter how hard you charge, how much force you put against me. I'm standing firm. And that's kind of the idea that he's talking about here. Stand firm in the Lord. Don't allow yourselves to be tossed to and fro. So... My mind immediately went to uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 at the great end of the chapter on resurrection where the, he's talked about the, the sting of death being gone for believers. You know, it's only good things that await us. God gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Hmm, same words, beloved, brothers. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm, stand firm, don't be moved about. You know, the truth is, the more Christians are unfamiliar with the Bible, the more they'll be able to be moved around. Be in your Bible, read your Bible, study your Bible. Then you can be firm. If, you, if you're not, you're hearing messages from this, you know, person, that person. Sometimes they're religious persons. Sometimes they're pastors of churches. But if, if they're speaking deceptions and lies and errors, if you're not studying your Bible, not reading your Bible, how are you going to be aware of that? And then you, you're, you're bouncing here and there and all over the place. No, stand firm and the Lord be steadfast. Like, uh, like soldiers who stand firm in battle, they resist the influences of the false teachers. Like you got to hold the line, hold the line. And by the way, stand, this command, stand. It's not, hey, Brad, stand. It's not, Sue, stand. It's you stand. It's plural. Because he's writing to the whole church. So, Brad, help me out, if you would. We're going to stand. We're going to be like the sumo wrestlers, but not facing each other. Okay, so we're going to lock arms. You got it. And stand. Sue, why don't you join us? I could go on. We get everyone in this, and I'll tell you, if I was standing there by myself and Rob Dick Voss came over and pushed me, I'd, I'd fall over. Because he's a big, big dude. But if Rob came up now and pushed against the three of us, we wouldn't fall over. We would stand firm because we're holding on to each other and the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord together is what he's saying. Thank you. That's just awesome. It's, 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 it's telling us how much we need the Lord, certainly, but it's also telling us how much we need each other. And who you stand with is important. They should be in the Lord. In the Lord. And I think the meaning of that little uh, prepositional phrase, in the Lord, has it's something like this. It, it's stand fast and living Thoroughly Christian lives together in submission to the Lord. In submission to the Lord. So let me just read you a couple other verses. It goes with that and then a final thought for today. So 1 Corinthians 16, 13, very similar idea. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 8. For now we live. Paul writing to the church. I live because of what I see going on in you, is what he's saying. Now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. Second Tim, uh, Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by spoken word or our letter. That's emphasizing the need of getting the right information from the right teachers, right? 
the things you've heard from me, an apostle, and others like me. And then Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? Set us free. What? In what way? Set us free to do whatever we want, live however we want? No. He set us free from slavery to sin and condemnation of the law. That's what he set us free. So he says, you know, if Christ has set you free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't allow yourself to be convinced by some other false teacher, some other messenger who says, yeah, yeah, you've got, you know, you've got the gospel, it's great, it's saved by faith, but, but, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, it's back to the issue. It's the, I don't know if you read the epistles very often. I read them at least once a year as I'm reading through the Bible. And every time I read them, I see repeated themes running, not just through a book, but through all of the epistles. And this is one of those. Watch out for the false teachers. Stand firm against the attacks of the enemy. You know, take up the shield of faith. Put on the whole armor of God. Stand firm. Resist the devil, right? Uh, and it, it's a stand. Stand firm. And the only way we can is to do so together. So, the way I concluded this after this first command was this way. How, how are they to stand fast? I mean, what will this thoroughly Christian life look like? <laughs> you're going you're, you're gonna to be angry or annoyed when I say this next sentence. Uh, Paul's answer to how that is to be done is found in the adverb in the statement. Adverb. What adverb? Thus. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Thus. You could think of it this way. In this way. Stand firm in this way in the Lord. In this adverb I think it refers to what has preceded and what follows, you know, the preceding parts of chapter 3 and what he is going to say after this initial command. So perhaps Paul has in mind, you know, stand firm in what I've already told you and stand firm in what I'm going to tell you, what I'm about to tell you. So the church was to do all that they could, uh, you know, do not to be weakened in their testimony. How? By disunity. We'll see it as we go on through this passage again. It's already been in the letter. Uh, by disunity, by tension. We see it right in our text here in verse 2. We'll see it, the tension, conflict that's existing. That can break up uni- unity in a church. Wrong values. Trusting in opinions and convictions over truth, seeing them as not being different. Pastor Greg did a, has done a great job in, in the past uh, months expressing the importance of seeing those distinctions in that. So, not following false teachers? Well, certainly that is important. So they were to stand together. In accomplishing all that God planned and purpose for them. We, brothers and sisters, beloved, longed for people. My joy, my crown. We are to stand together. Amen. Stand firm Amen. in the Lord. 
And what Paul will say following this very first command in another series of imperatives will give us some more instruction on how we're to do that. How we can stand firm in the Lord together. And the only way that we can stand firm together is if we are together, and that requires us believing in the true gospel, right? That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and what he accomplished on the cross. As he bore our sins in his body, bore the consequence of God's wrath coming down upon him so that we might be given the gift of eternal life. Do you have that? Are, you, are we together? I hope we are. I hope everyone is very confident about that. If you're not, you need to talk about it. Please do so. Talk with brother or sister. We'd want to help you work through that if you have any question about whether you are really in it, in him. Well, Lord, we are thankful for this time in your word. Such encouragement you give us. Such, uh, what a beautiful thing that you chose men long, long ago to be borne along by the Holy Spirit as they use their own personalities and vocabularies and interests and focus of ministry. And, and they wrote down your words. They wrote down your words so that we might be able to read them today and be encouraged and transformed by them. So use our time together today as each week to bring uh, about each of us individually and us as a church looking more and more like Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for the food that we're going to eat and the joy of the fellowship around it. We give you praise for all of it in Jesus' great name. Amen.